Dotnet Rocks, episode 1017, with guest Mike Wood. Recorded Monday, July 21st, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Colin Richard, Mike Woods here. We're going to have a great discussion. But uh, first, I want to talk to my buddy. Hey, man, how are you? I am well. You know, a couple weeks at home, all kind of chill, making paella, you know, that kind of thing. A couple of announcements. We're going to be streaming some stuff from Dev Intersection and from FalafelCon. Uh, Pop got hired to do a stream of the keynotes and actually of a full a whole room all day at Dev Intersection. Nice. Yeah, more details about that will be on those pages, so check it out. What's up with you, man? I just chill, you know, summertime. I'm enjoying it. It's been good. I've been building new hardware, and, you know, the, the digital house takes tinkering and maintenance, so I've been sort of cleaning things out, replacing a few machines. I'm finally swapping out the kitchen computer, which oh, is yeah. all touchscreen, and, and making that better. I've been uh, writing code and, you know, learning some new songs on the guitar. I, I started a software company. Um <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Decided yeah. you need another business, huh? Yeah. So, .NET Rocks uh, is not enough anymore, huh? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So .NET Rocks is not going away by any chance. We're, in fact, we're doing more and more good stuff. But uh, I did decide to uh, start a development company. It's called App V Next. Nice. And you can go to appvnext.com and hear all about that. And, hey, if you want to work with us and, you you know, you got what it takes and you're, it's, if you seem like it's a good fit, just contact me. So... Well, and you've been writing a lot of code lately, all uh, all kinds of crazy Connect stuff, and I have in cool and projects. Fantastically, customers are knocking down my door faster than I can write code for it. So uh, that's, that's why a I, terrible problem. Yeah, that's why I'm looking for uh, for help. So. Okay, yeah. So appvnext.com, and that brings us to better know a framework. Awesome. There, I said it clearly. <laughs> <laughs> you should hear some of the you should hear some of the things that people think I say when I say better know a framework. It involved beds and, and you never mind. Just never mind. All right. All right. Yeah. What do we got, buddy? Well, if you go to and this is a kind of funny tiny URL URL, but if you go to tinyurl.com slash node blobs. What? Node blobs. Uh oh. So, you know, Node.js works in Azure, and uh, we have Azure Blob Storage. Yep. And sometimes we want to know how to use the two things together. So, uh, this is nothing new, but if you weren't thinking about it, uh, you might want to check it out. So, this is how to use Blob Storage in Node.js. And uh, it's a Microsoft document. And as a new user of Blob Storage, I find it absolutely very cool and easy to use. Uh, it was just not difficult at all. Nice. And I, I just appreciate that that Microsoft puts together stuff. Node is not one of their technologies, right? Yeah. And, but Azure works with everything, and so they've got to solve these problems too. And I just love the fact that you can write, you know, uh, server-side blobs in the cloud from JavaScript. Nice. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. What weird world are we <laughs> living in exactly? 
but very powerful. So yeah. check it out. Tinyurl.com slash node blobs. Nice. Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment of a show 1010, 1010. Because, uh-huh. you know, we have a lot of shows. Yeah. And that's the one we did with David Graham. We were talking about teaching new developers, which generated a lot of conversation, actually. You know? Yeah. I think we're, we're touching on a point here that folks are really concerned about education and, and being more effective as developers. I actually think, Richard, we ought to have a smackdown between, you know, the academic side and the, uh, the trade school side. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I would love, would you guys like that? Would you want to see blood? Is that what you want? <laughs> Jeez. Are we Jerry Springer? Are we Jerry Springer? Is that where we're going? Get the chairs. Let's get the chairs. Let's go. <laughs> nice. And the man with the PhD takes a chair to the head. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> this, this comment comes from Stephen Hans that he says, as a development manager who has to hire developers all of the time, I've seen a decline in the skill sets coming from people who've graduated with comm sci degrees. It's a real shame. These courses seem to be so watered down these days. I'm speaking mainly from a UK perspective, so I can't comment on other countries. I used to run a development academy where we gave internships to students on their third year work placement year, and recruiting got harder each year. So I think they're having more and more time trouble placing people. Yeah. We did end up with some great new developers, though, who we offered jobs to after the degrees, but it was very hard search to find them. When we hire a developer, the first thing I look for is on their CV the evidence of a pet project, whether it's a game, a website, or a blog. This, to me, shows that the developer really cares about self-development and is passionate. You can tell how passionate they are when they talk about their pet projects. Mm. Of course, their career experience is also very important, but the better devs always seem to have pet projects. Yeah. Yeah, I can't argue with that. You know, development is one of those passion things, right? It's a mastery thing, like like playing music. And so if it doesn't twig you that way, then you look at it, you, you approach software very differently. I mean, I've met lots of folks who are nine to five programmers and that's what they like to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're after passionate people, they should have pet projects. I won't say who it was, but one developer sent me a CV with a pet project that is porting Zork to uh, using, I think it was SignalR, but through an IM bot. So you can play Zork through IM. <laughs> that's awesome isn't that awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man so steven thanks so much for your comment a dotnet rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a dotnet rocks mug write a comment on the website at dotnet rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps we've got them for ios android windows phone 7 and 8 and windows 8 and before we go any further i need to tell you that plural site is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including lots and lots of Azure. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Mike. Mike Wood is a technical evangelist for Redgate Software, working on the Sarah Brada team. He has worked with Microsoft Technologies for the past 17 years, with the last five years focusing on Microsoft Azure. He was one of the co-founders of the Cincinnati.net user group and has spoken internationally at user groups and conferences. Mike is also the editor for the new Azure educational resource site, JustAzure.com. You can catch up with Mike on his blog at mvwood.com slash blog and on Twitter under the handle at Mike Woe, M-I-K-E-W-O. And uh, welcome. 
Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You're all about Azure. I am. Have you done any Node? Very, very little Node on Azure, but it's definitely supported. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I just like the idea of uh, writing blobs with JavaScript in the cloud. It's just fun. <laughs> That's just something I never had thought of, you know? They did a lot of great stuff uh, with the Azure mobile services. And when that first came out, it was all based in Node um, with a Node as a backend or services as a backend. And now you have the option to do it in C Sharp. But I find that I still gravitate towards uh, when I'm giving examples from mobile services, I still gravitate towards Node. Before we get into it, do you find that talking to customers directly, um, they're, they're really confused as to what the term cloud means? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, well, everybody has their own definition. It's getting better uh, as more people are kind of defining or, or learning about it. But uh, oftentimes you'll get into discussions of people and they're like, well, we have a private cloud and then, and they may have. Uh, but when you start discussing it and getting down into it, it's no, they, they have a guy that they, they send an email to and say, give me a server and a day later they get one. And that's, yeah. that's not cloud. Right. Yeah, yeah. When did cloud just become your data center? That's it. I mean, th I think people substitute the word cloud for a server, you know, and you send that to my cloud and he sends it to his cloud. And, and come on, guys, really? <laughs> and maybe we should just get our clouds together and they can book appointments for us to maybe have lunch. Right. And we're all just in the sky. When's the sky going to show up as a word? <laughs> all right. Enough of that. I just find that, that the term has been hijacked and to death and, and, and redone. So... Um, I spend quite a bit of time just setting, making sure that we're all talking about the same thing because that's really important, you know, when, when people are talking and customers are talking to you and expressing their ideas and you're telling them what's possible, that they know what you mean when you say cloud and vice versa. Absolutely. you got to spend some time setting, setting expectations because uh, some people think cloud is the silver bullet because they read it in an article or something. Yeah. Um, or they they have, I guess they have ideas on what cloud should be and then they'll, they'll make a decision and then they'll find out, well, that solution isn't really necessarily fitted for the cloud. Um, mm. A long time ago I had a discussion and this was before, uh, before Azure was really getting going and it was just a general cloud discussion. Mm. And someone was saying, Hey, we have this situation. Uh, a vendor has come in and they've been working on this application and, and it's been working okay, but it's really, really, really slow. And it comes, come to find out they were engineers doing CAD drawings and they needed to be able to edit these CAD drawings and make comments and whatnot. And they were just throwing these gigabyte files up and down the pipe. Right. Um, and they claimed that it was slow. Uh-huh. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So not everything goes into the cloud. I, I think it, the limiting factor is size. I've, I've actually seen a, had a bunch of conversations recently about people needing to move terabytes to the cloud. Hmm. And yes. just doing the math around that and saying, you know, you can physically go buy a hard drive from Best Buy, copy that data onto that drive, and FedEx it faster than it's going to take to move it. Yeah. And Azure actually has that service. Uh, Amazon does as well. But I mean, you can actually do a, an import. And that's how, I mean, that's how you would get that much data in. Mm -hmm. Physically mailing hard drives. Yeah. Yeah. They that's have a, a whole system you go in. You can uh, initiate a ticket to say, hey, I'm going to do this import. Uh, you encrypt it on the disk when you send it. Um, and then when it gets to the other side, you they mount it up for you. And then you use your private key, which they never get, um, to decrypt it and push it into your storage account. 
Nice. There are some things that, uh, you know, I'm, I've just started using blob storage and there are some things that, um, you just can't do easily when you're dealing with especially larger files. And I don't mean large, large files. I just mean files like, you know, 10 megabyte files, stuff like that. If you have access to the file system, you know, and you want to read a, an attribute on the file or something like that, or you want to, um, look at a tag in an MP3 file or something, right? Mm-hmm. You, it, it's very easy just to open that up locally, read the tag, boom, you're done. It's a quick thing. But, you know, when it's a, uh, when, when it's in storage, if there's no API for giving you access to that tag or to that, uh, you know, a- attributes of that file or, or anything else that you need, you have to download the whole thing to your, you know, web server and then open it and then take a look. And, you know, your customers might be in for a little bit of a wait where they weren't before. Those, those little things you don't think of, you know, when you have, um, cloud uh, applications when you're developing for the cloud that's that almost seem like difficult to anticipate until you're there do you have yeah, a che- when, you have a checklist of those things not necessarily a checklist but it, it kind of goes back to any solution that you're trying to put together and you say oh, well what do we need out of this um and if you run into something like that let's say it's a tag on an mp3 uh blob storage actually has the ability for you to attach separate properties to the blob and it's works kind of like uh, the properties or the tags that you would see on a file system. Right, metadata. Yeah, it's metadata. You can't search it right away, right? But you can certainly add it to the file. So mm-hmm. that if you know which file you're going after and you need to be able to just quickly pull a particular tag, when you push that file up into blob storage, you can just add it as metadata. Yeah. But like anything, you have to know that ahead of time. And like you're saying, you're going to run into those little things yep. um, over time. And there are some slight differences when you're uh, approaching something from on-premises to the cloud. And it's identifying these little pieces and and just working around them. Yep, sure is. And sometimes uh, you won't know them until you're actually running the software and the customer says, seems a little slow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is, it yeah. is. There's so much you take for granted in the way that you currently develop that yeah. just behave differently in the cloud. And, you know, Carl, you nailed a great one with disk access, but registry keys, mm. uh, you know, all resources in general, like all the rules are different. Yep. Well, not necessarily all the rules. Um, one of the things that we run into when we're discussing the cloud with developers or, or bringing them up the speed is they, they will take that approach. They'll take that mindset of everything is different. This right. is going to take me forever to learn. Um, and I worked with a gentleman named Brent Steinman, who was an Azure MVP he now works for Microsoft. And, uh, he, he had a great way of discussing this, and it was really cool. I watched a presentation he gave, and then I started following suit. And that is, he started out with a map of an, a traditional, quote-unquote, traditional enterprise application and said, look, here are the pieces that you're used to. Here's a server where your code is running. Here's a SQL database. Here's a messaging system. Uh, here's a distributed file system, et cetera. And then he would ask a few questions about these, and people knew, you know, that had been doing that kind of development for a while They're just like, yeah, that's the way it looks. And then he would slowly start going through and mapping, and here's what that would be in Azure. So for distributed file system, we're going to look at blob storage or perhaps table storage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we look at SQL Azure uh, or Azure SQL database, as they call it now. Um, Or we look at an actual SQL server running in IaaS in Azure. So he'd start mapping them to show them that it's not completely different. 
Uh, but as you've pointed out, there are little things that you run into. You're like, oh, I need to handle that a little differently. Um, in, for example, on-premises, it's most people have these set schedules. Servers will go down at this time or on a weekend patching system or something like that. And only the folks that have been running true 24-7 must-always-be-up um, consumer-facing sites have dealt with this before. A lot of enterprises are, are now learning that, well, now I've got to patch these things on the fly or because they're hosted somewhere else, um, they may get patched for me if I'm using platform as a service. Mm-hmm. And so these are the little things that, yeah, that come up that you're like, okay, we just need to learn how to handle these differently. Yep. Now, I mean, I throw my IT hat on. One of the nice things about cloud, one of the fact that you can just create new instances of services is that I can stand up a new version of the site on different VMs, leaving the old ones completely alone, and then just switch the DNS over. So, you know, yeah. you don't actually shut the old one down. You just move people to the new one. Yeah, that's a very common thing, especially if the if the environment itself is very large uh, and you've got to update a lot of different things at, a, at one time. I just think it, it, part of the challenge of working effectively with the cloud is your IT mindsets are very different because there's not, you know, you got to stop thinking in servers. It's just instances and there's lots and lots and lots of them. Just make more. Mm. Yep. Yeah, Richard, boy, you just nailed it there. Don't think about servers. Think about instances like you would instantiate an object. Yeah. Which is weird when you think about that as a whole machine, effectively. That's right. It is weird. <laughs> the power. The power. <laughs> I think the the more people buy into that abstraction and, the, and they say, look, this isn't necessarily a server I have to care and feed for. This is an application instance, right? Or an instance or some service that I'm dealing with. The more they can abstract away from that, I mm. think the more flexibility they'll find that they have. Do you think there's a moment where you know, you, you're, you're developing along and all of a sudden something that seemed like it was going to take a long time turns out to be a button click and you're like, oh, well, that was easy. So absolutely, there are times which things just suddenly become simple. Um, I mean, we've already kind of mentioned it before, but for developers to be able to go, you know, I need a new um, copy of this environment so I can test out something new. Um, and for Azure... They're working on Resource Manager, which is something new in Azure. It's not completely out. It's in preview. But you'll be able to map out an entire environment to say, I need this machine, and it's going to be running SQL Server, and I need this um, storage account, and I need this SQL DB, and I need this together, and they need to share their um, virtual network, and they need to have these configurations. And then you can use things like uh, the PowerShell um, what is it? The PowerShell state, desired state configurability, mm-hmm. and also the chef and puppet, if you want. Mm-hmm. And you can use that to actually get in and do the nitty gritty settings on each individual machine. But in the end, all of this is described as one big JSON file. And then the developer can just say, oh, I need a new test environment to mess around with this. Um, Azure, here's the JSON file, go. And yeah. you wait a few minutes, and then you come back, and it's set up, and you can start working on it. So those kinds of things make it easy for developers to try out new things. And it also makes it much easier for the people doing the deployments. They are just roll this out. And if it's part of the CI build, then it just makes deployments so much simpler and you're not doing something completely different when it comes time to actually roll out to production. 
Hold that thought because this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by dnsimple.com, simplifying the process of registering domains and providing headache-free DNS services starting at just $8 a month. Online at dnsimple.com. So, Mike, this is all a very DevOpsy conversation at this point. If you're getting new to Azure, do you find that development people have to learn this stuff or do you drag the IT people in as well? Like how, how do you see this happening, getting that, those kinds of capabilities going? Personally, I think both groups, developers and IT people need to, to come to the middle. Um, you, you have a group of people and developers who aren't used to thinking about any of this, right? They're right. just, here's, here's the code, go run this somewhere. I don't care. Yeah. Um, at most, you might get out of them, I want a box that has this much memory to support what I'm wanting to do. And then you have the IT folks that are like, I don't, I don't, I, I can give you that, I can set up the servers and all that, but I don't really want to have to understand how these all link together, you know. So with that in mind, I think both need to come together because with developers, they need to understand when you go and stand these instances up, how do they communicate? Uh, that will drive some of their architecture uh, in some cases as to how many instances need to be up. That This is information they need to know. Right. And then for IT folks, they also need to understand that, well, these ports are going to have to be open. I'm going to have to understand how to monitor this thing. Uh, I may have to take more responsibility in what the application is spitting out to tell me what's going on to indicate, yes, we need more instances. No, we don't need more instances. Or now there's something wrong with the configuration on one of these boxes. Now, and you're talking about like elasticity at that point, scaling stuff up and down based on usage? Yes, in some cases, but also just is the health of the app, right? Right. And this is something that I think we've done a poor job of um, traditionally is giving enough information to the IT folks so that they know how to troubleshoot the app in production um, and the developers providing that information. Well, you wonder how they were doing it before. Right, like what's really changed in the cloud? Don't tell me they were actually going and staring at the server and seeing how fast the hard drive light was blinking. That's just it. I, I think that unfortunately, a lot of people were throwing things over the wall, and you might get lucky, and they had some interesting logging in there to tell them what happened um, in one particular part of the code, which they already expected problems to be, or they had problems when they were developing it. And then the IT folks would call up and say, "We're seeing errors in the log about you know X Y Z fail. What does that mean?" And there was just this back and forth. And I think in the cloud world, when you're talking about tons and tons of instances all churning out data, they can produce a tremendous amount of data. And if you don't have a good way to filter that, look at it and distill it down to what does this mean? Does this mean we need to scale because we're, we're coming under heavy load? Or does this mean that one of our services is down? Uh, does this mean that one of our third-party um, partnerships has an issue? How are we going to react to that? Yeah, I find now most of the best apps I'm working with have diagnostic dashboards that were built by development. Basically, they have buttons and knobs on them. It's like, okay, well, check this, create a phony transaction and run it end to end just to see if it works. Because it's hard to tell when software is actually working. Absolutely. And the, the people who have that plan up front that say, we're going to build this in to be able to send a test transaction through. They get it. They understand what it's going to be when they need to diagnose the issues in production. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of folks are still, you know, still at that point where 
they get into production and they realize, oh, now we need to go add this logging or now we need to go add this capability. And they definitely need to be thinking about that stuff up front. Right. Do you see this as a greenfield process primarily, like taking new apps to the cloud? Or does it really make sense to take an existing app? I think it all depends on the app. That's the great consulting answer, right? Right. It, it all depends. Yeah. So for greenfield, you want to look and say, does it make sense to have this in the cloud to begin with? And if it does, great, then you can you can start from scratch with cloud in mind. Right. And for a brownfield app or a, a legacy app, it's kind of like, does this belong? And, you know, I've talked to clients in the past when I was a consultant and they would do things like, well, we have this HR application that's internal and uh, we think we want to move it to the cloud because either A, they think they'll save money, uh, which may or may not be true. B, they want to just do whatever the uh, the cool thing is, et cetera. Right. But you have this conversation and it turns out that it's used by three people that are, you know, five doors down from the data center. And you're like, no, that. I don't, I don't know if you really get a lot of umph out of that unless you actually are saving money. So you're going to introduce things like latency. Um, mm. they're, they're not used to that. And so will that be a good operation or will that be a good application to move to the cloud or not? So you'll have... Well, that. I got to think right off the bat, the easy app to move to the cloud is a web app. Yes. Like, because it's uh, cloudy. Absolutely. I mean, websites to move to the cloud are generally pretty easy, but depending on where they're getting their data from. Uh, so because data becomes sometimes a big barrier to say, where can this data live? Does yeah. it have to live on premises or Absolutely. can we move it to the cloud as well? And, and that's the political discussion or the business discussion right away. Yep. Can we Absolutely. move this data into the cloud? Are you prepared to live with that? And how many shows have we done now? Oh, yeah. People are freaking out. It's a deal breaker for many, many companies. Yeah. Moving data in the cloud is a scary thing. But and I, I'm totally with you, Mike. That's the deciding factor on performance and behavior of the app is where does the data live? Absolutely. And more people are becoming, I think, comfortable with this. I mean, when I first started talking about cloud, every single conversation, as soon as you mentioned or gave a general description of what the cloud was, almost always there were two questions that came up. Security, and does it really save you anything, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in that order. And now I start having conversations with folks, and security, uh, right or wrong, is, is much further down the list. I mean, they want to talk about it, but they're not completely freaked out about it. Right. It also depends on which vertical you talk to, right? Someone who's in banking and finance is going to be a lot more skeptical than someone that's just doing some online sales. Have Have you ever seen anybody who wants to host their websites in the cloud, but have their database, you know, their database on premise, and have their websites calling in to to the on premise database? There are some folks that definitely do that. Uh, when I was a consultant, there is some level of data that we worked with with a client that needed to be on premises. They they really had to have high control over it, mm. and there was discussion back and forth, right? You're going to introduce latency when you have something that goes out to your servers in the cloud and then right. that's going to have to reach down into your system. Um, and then on top of that, you've got, you know, now you've got an additional place where things can break. If your connection to the internet goes down, then that section of the site isn't available. Um, but they chose to indicate, you know, these bits of data have to be on premises. We cannot allow this outside. And, and here's the funny thing about that. You know, we as humans think that if something is on premises that, you know, and it's behind a locked door that somehow 
it's inaccessible, right? You know, it's, we have control over it, but that little wire that runs under the door, you know, or in the yes. ceiling is how yep. it gets out. And, you know, what you're really asking yourself is, do we trust our IT security guys more than we trust Microsoft or or Amazon, Absolutely. or Amazon, you know, or your cloud provider. That's really what you're asking yourself. And, you know, I, I gotta say that, uh, you know, I, I kind of like having a multi-billion dollar company putting their security resources into protecting my data, you know, versus my guy, you know, who is my guy. Uh, how, how far on top of things is he, you know, versus Microsoft? I, it's a, that's a hard, thing to evaluate but that's really the question you have to ask who do we trust more and i've i've had that conversations with several folks and one gentleman gave me the best answer that that i had heard up to that point it's not in his consideration he really trusted the folks he had working for him um and he's like you know we send them to a lot of training we we make sure that they're up to snuff on things he said so i trust that right otherwise i wouldn't have them as employees he said however his consideration was around the, the legal aspects. Um, yeah. And this is just one of those, another one of those areas where the laws fall behind the technology. Yeah. And so his concern was nobody's really stepped out there and said, you know, here are various cases that set precedence on data security and who's at fault and things like that. And so he was holding his thoughts in reserve to decide once there's more precedent, we'll be happy to jump in. As long as it, you know, the precedent falls on behalf of the business. And that's what Richard was alluding to as well yep. when he said that we've had so many shows about this and we have that, you know, the, it, the, the laws may just be, uh, the deal breaker right there have, might have nothing to do with your company. It's just that, you know, in Europe, for example, European data, I guess there's a law, isn't there that European data needs to stay in Europe? No, not really, but it has to be properly secured. Yeah. Just the, you know, uh, and I appreciate that Microsoft and, and other cloud providers have done the paperwork to show this data is secure. Mm. Yeah. But I well, also like, like, there's a big legal discussion going on right now. Lawyers are fighting between the U.S. government and I think Microsoft's involved in that fight about protecting data in that data center. I'd much rather have Microsoft's lawyers doing that than mine. Yep. Because in the end, if, if the, Department of Homeland Security or CIA or whatever shows up at, at your door, if they show up at your door with a warrant and say, we would like your data, I mean, are you going to tell them no? Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> uh, and I, it was a few years ago that I dealt with a situation where um, the FBI got a warrant to seize a server from a small data center in Texas because there was a child pornographer on one of the servers and they seized the entire data center. So yeah. two thousand businesses went out, like just yeah. be, and, the, and they. By the time anybody realized what's going on, they had taken everything. They, you'd get it back in a couple of years, but the ISPs now out of business, and all of those companies were hooped. Like the servers are gone. They have been. They're part of an investigation. And that, that's one of those things where I think, again, the laws and, and the technology need to to get come closer together, right? So providers need to find a way that when someone shows up and says, here is the business that we're after, where is their data? Yeah. Well, let us be able to extract that out and give it to you without affecting our other customers. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. 
It's time to pull the blobs out of my node with an app fabric. Oh, jeez. <laughs> 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 this is what happens when you have too much time to think about a joke. Sorry. No, it's time to give away a Component One Studio Enterprise to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Component One Studio Enterprise. We're talking .NET controls for professional developers. Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, Component One's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Marcus Erlinson. Congratulations, Marcus. Golf clap for you, sir. Marcus just won a Component 1 Studio 1 Enterprise. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away something good. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club picked at random. And we like to ask our guests, Mike. If you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? Wow. So I'm, I end up doing a lot of different hobbies, so I would probably end up buying a lot of like little gadgets. Um, I'd probably invest in the new Lego Mindstorms. Um, probably nice. get a Parrot drone. Yeah. Uh, so little things to play with. So it's like an, an Internet of Things collection. Love it. There you go. <laughs> Everything with an IP address. Do the new Mindstorms have IP? That would be cool. I'm not sure. I think it does. Because, I mean, you can communicate to it uh, over Bluetooth and, I think, Wi-Fi. So oh, there you go. It's an IP address. I think I'll skip the, the Wi-Fi uh, light bulbs, though. I saw a, a tweet uh, earlier last week of somebody saying that uh, not only were, did someone find a way to hack them in order to steal the password to the Wi-Fi, hmm. uh, but that uh, I think Hanselman was doing a firmware update that like <laughs> said, do not turn off your light bulb. And then no. a couple of hours. <laughs> yes. I funny. saw those tweets too. Yes. A, you're patching light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> B, you have a risk to bricking your light bulbs. That's crazy. <laughs> Who needs to patch a light bulb? It's the world's simplest binary circuit, man. <laughs> I love it. But, now, the world we're in, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Ooh, this this new Rev. I got some new colors. Nice. Ooh. <laughs> Watch my Christmas scene. I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm already looking at creating a separate subnet in the home network just for the devices that are in the house, the thermostats and the, and the, the scales, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. All right, I have a, a question, and that is, do you find that developers like setting up development environments in the cloud, like on virtual machines, actual virtual machines? And if not, are there other there are other um, development platforms that work in the cloud besides Visual Studio? Is are you finding that developers are are um, are liking this, or are they resistant to it? And that might be a good question for comments too uh, to our listeners. But go ahead. I think people who are used to working on a virtual machine, like I don't know too many people that go out 
and uh, create a virtual machine and then work from that virtual machine mm. uh, unless they're just doing a proof of concept. Um, and actually, MSDN is great for that. If you have MSDN benefits, you can go out, set that up with your Azure account, and then you can go and say, spend me up a new, uh, well, there's already a Visual Studio 14 beta you know, image out there. Mm, right? right. And you can just go try that out. Um, Grant Fritchie, who also works for Redgate, he, he's, every time a new... CTP or deployment for SQL Server comes out, he's always like, oh, you, everyone in, on Twitter is downloading a new update. He mm-hmm. just goes out to Azure and spins one up to play with it. Uh, so from that aspect, I think developers really like it because they don't have to spend a tremendous amount of time you know, putting one together just to see what it does. Mm-hmm. And as far as setting up and working with Azure uh, or the cloud locally, you know, it, all of them have SDKs. Uh, all the cloud platforms uh, have SDKs. And uh, if you're not using Visual Studio, I mean, there's several people that use Macs and like we were talking about earlier, you know, using Node. And you have a Node SDK. Um, Microsoft's open source group has done a great job in producing a lot of different SDKs for many languages. Right. And then just grab the tools they're used to using. Now, Richard, doesn't Telerik have a cloud-based development solution? Yeah, their platform 3.0 was really a, it's not it's for building mobile apps but it actually is like a, a whole IDE for working as well they've got a plugin for studio but you have like a choice of both yeah and and there's a few others that are working on that too and I, I saw this a while ago with a few of my customers especially when they're offshoring they didn't want to send the code base out of off premise like yeah. out of the country so everybody was all of the developers were rdping into vms running studio yeah and, you know, if you're only sending the keystrokes back and forth and the mouse moves, it works. It's just a little clunky, but it speaks to this interesting idea that your dev environment itself is virtualized. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of um, kind of nice for someone who has a, a, you know, a team that they want everybody running the same stuff and you want to be able to just drop in and be able to see what's going on. I mean, there are some benefits, and of course, there are drawbacks too. Like you know, that precludes you from using any kind of hardware that's local, right? You wouldn't be able to do Connect yeah. development unless you had some sort of, you know, sockets-based abstraction or something like that, where it could talk to your desktop hardware. But, but now you know, now you're introducing latency, so that has its own problems. But yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, uh, I kind of like the idea of a standardized development environment for a team. Well, I've I've heard of people doing that as well. Not only just for not wanting the the code to get out of out of the building, quote unquote, right? Um, but also from the standpoint of just licensing control. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Well, because right now licenses are licensed for the most part. When you come into licensing, God, I'd hate to do a show on licensing. What an horrible topic. Uh, yeah. um, they're <laughs> licensed to the individual developer, really. You know, the company yeah. may have paid for it. In theory, the company controls it. But in the end, it's like it's got the dev's name on it. Mm. And devs come and go, especially in a contract environment. Mm. How do you keep control of those licenses? And it's not just studio. It's also a library set, like a Telerik library set or mm. component one or anything like that. Like, those are thousands of dollars worth of licenses. How do you, as an organization, keep control of them? That's a really good question. That's one I need yeah. an answer to, actually. Yeah, you're headed down exactly this path, <laughs> That's where I'm you? going. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, imagine as a contract developer working on three or four different projects for three or four different companies. 
Each of those companies should own the licenses for the products that you're using as you do the development. Absolutely. Right. Or are you, you know, a hired gun? Are you like a carpenter that brings his own tools to the site? Well, and and that may be true also, but then you have to have your dev environment set up for you and for all of your other companies, which may or may not be compatible with uh, the environment that you require for them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, you're a dev that works for a bunch of different companies. Do you have a separate dev machine for each one? Do you have a dev VM, you know, local VM? That's what I did when I was uh, consulting. I would have a, a virtual machine for each of the projects I was working on. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that more and more, not just for licensing, but also f- because the configuration of the VM matches production. It gets rid of a whole class of errors. So here yes. you go. Now what you can do is instead of you know bringing them to the cloud and making them work in the cloud, you just send them a, a VM. You send your devs a VM and you say, this is our environment. It's already got our licensed Visual Studio and blah, 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 and all the tools that we need. Here you go. Now, what's the downside of this? Is it the most productive way for the dev to work? Knowing that, I mean, in theory, the most expensive thing in all of this is the labor hours of writing code. Mm. Is mm-hmm. this the optimal? I'm, you know, I'm thinking about your situation, Mike, as a consultant. You had four different environments. How different were they? In some cases, they weren't very different at all. It was it was around the configuration of IIS or, or something like that that I was trying to keep um, from you know sneaking in little dependency issues that we wouldn't realize until we went to deploy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that was the point I made earlier on. There was yeah. uh, you know living in the DevOps world, we're getting really big on template driven configuration all the time. Mm-hmm. There's no yes. custom configurations. You can't hide your your little changes. You get your configurations from operations, and and anytime you want to make a change to it, you talk to them about it because they own the templates. But that way, production, QA, dev are working from exactly the same configuration. There's a lot of problems that are created when those things are different. And just having one common set of templates for everybody just sucks the air right out of that. Hmm. Yep. And we are getting away from a cloud discussion here. I realize that. So we should probably bring it back in. It's more of a virtualization discussion. It's a virtualization now. discussion. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, you're ultimately going to get there when you're talking about what do we do with the cloud? You know, sometimes that's the answer is, you know, we need virtualized local resources. And when you look at things, well, Microsoft's got a pretty good head up there, right? With their hybrid approach, um, you can do a site to site connection. So you have a, a a virtual network set up and you expand out into Azure to run your dev workloads or your test workloads, things that you only need from time to time. And then you're mm. not constantly running. Mm. And that kind of gives them that expandability without having to manage all of that uh, and purchase all the equipment and all that stuff on premises. And it gives you that, that flexibility to add new things, try new things. And I think that more people should think about, where a cloud can help them outside of just production. Right. Well, the test environment seems beautiful for for cloud. Back in the dot-com boom, I could get the budget to build out a matching set of hardware to production for us to do pre-prod testing and failover and all that good stuff. But you just don't get the budget for that anymore. Mm. No. You know, the fact that you could do it in the cloud and only pay for the minutes that you run for a test infrastructure... I think that makes a lot of sense, even almost more than production. One of the products that we put together deals with uh, cloud storage. And we're 
writing tests to measure how much latency is there, uh, how are we doing when we push this blob up, are we correctly getting the information back down, things like that. And to do that and run that test on-premises, well, you're pushing stuff up to the cloud and you're pulling it back down. So you're going to get some bandwidth charges. Not a lot. It's not like it's overly expensive, but right. you have the latency. And what you really want to know is, did the file get up there correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're testing these libraries, we do exactly what you say, Richard. We spin up a test instance up in the data center in Azure where we're pushing the storage and can do all that up there. It happens much, much faster. And then when we're done, we just turn it off. Yeah, that's pretty neat. You know, one of the, uh, in answer to one of the problems we were having or, or talking about before, which was file metadata, right? And yep. you mentioned that, well, you really can't search on that. But what you really have to do then is pull down your, and, and what you do when you go, go get a blob from Azure, it doesn't, you know, if you go get a list of blobs, you say get, get everything in this particular uh, directory, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that brings you down a, a list and it brings you a collection of of data it's not it's not the files themselves and it's not all the data for the files it's just the metadata for it so right. with that you could you know use a link query or whatever to figure out what is the subset of uh of files that i need that match this metadata and in fact i'm doing that just now and it it seems to be performant so it it will come back pretty quick but you got to be careful there cuz that list that you ask for if you've got a ton of files in there, right. you've got to then will or deal with continuation tokens, right? So if you have more than a thousand files in that directory, right, uh, or in that container, it will hand you back the first set and it'll say here, here, and, and it will also indicate there's a continuation token. So you right. would have to go back and ask for more. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Have not got to that point yet. And that's another one of those things that's a gotcha. That's like, yep. and we experienced that with uh, Amazon as well. Um, uh, you the continuation token. Oh, there's way too yep. many files. Yeah. Oops. Didn't think about that. Surprise. <laughs> it's, and it, it's a hard thing to answer the question. Well, how many files are in there? Well, unless the platform can tell you right away, there's X number of files in the container. You have to go kind of loop through and ask. Yeah. And uh, the same thing with Azure Table Storage. There's not a good way to say there are 5.6 million rows or entities in this table. Mm. Uh, because the way the storage is set up, it is geared towards performance of retrieving based on partition key and row key. Um, and it's distributed across a lot of different machines. And to ask the question, how many are in there? Well, I've got to go to each one of those machines and ask how many they have. Um, and it's that's why that question of how many do I have is just hard to answer. But if you want to say, give me the first five uh, rows or sorry, the first five entities Mm -hmm. that have this partition key, then you'll get them back right away. You, you know, if you're, if you're really crazy, you'll keep a database. And so then you can, you know, just do a count star. (laughs) There's, and that goes to the, the point of, is this the right data store for what I'm trying to store? Correct. Yeah. Back to the the blob question on the the metadata, right? If you know ahead of time that these are the things that I want to be able to track, uh, then maybe you put the blob store, you know, put the file up in the blob storage, but then you use either a relational database or a a key value pair or something Mm -hmm. to store your metadata that you can search quickly. You know, I'd do the same thing if I had uh, a bazillion MP3 files in a directory and uh, and I didn't want to store those as blobs in a local SQL server. 
I would just make references to them in a database. So I can query the database and find out everything that I need to know, how many there are, what they are, what their names are, all that stuff. But then when I want to go uh, ask for, you know, get the data itself, there's a URL to that. Absolutely. And that's sort of what blob storage is. I mean, if you think about it, except that we have these other restrictions that the cloud brings with it. I always tell people to think of blob storage in Azure like your distributed file system. Um, there are some differences, but in the end, if all you're doing is pushing files up and storing them and then need to know where did that file go to, uh, a lot of apps are already doing what you're talking about, where they're keeping track of where they put the file. Um, right. and in fact, they, they probably are doing so so that they can uh, obfuscate the names of the files. Right? Sure. So that the front-end system for security purposes, isn't, isn't actually showing what the real name of the file on disk is. Right. And we're not actually giving them a URL to the file, which is, you know, may or may yeah. not be secure, insecure, or whatever. Well, that is one of the neat things with blob storage is you can hand out a, a direct URL to that file, including um, having it signed with, with what is called a signed access signature, mm -hmm. which includes the rights that you can read it for the next 10 minutes, right? Or that you can write to this location for some period of time. And so you can create these signed access signatures and hand it off. And that does that offloading of the actual work against the blob to blob storage. And you don't have to have that running on your services or your service, um, you know, moving those streams back and forth. That's very cool. Yeah, interesting stuff. So for folks who haven't gotten into Azure yet, uh, where do you get started today? I know this is always evolving. Where do you send folks? Absolutely. It's changing all the time. Uh, in fact, just last week at, at the World Partner Conference, they announced uh, machine learning, Azure machine learning, and I have not had a chance to even take a look at it. The platform gets has been getting really, really large. So I start folks uh, pointing them to Azure.com, of course, um, but there are a lot of different resources out there for folks that are brand new to Azure. Um, the Azure Training Kit, I would definitely recommend people take a look at that. And you can just Bing or Google for Azure Training Kit. And that's a resource put out by Microsoft. And it has a lot of different presentations in it. It's got demos. It's got videos. And you can download them. And actually, all, that, all of that content is out on GitHub. And if you go to, um, there's a GitHub repo called Azure Readiness that includes the training kit. On top of that, uh, there's an event uh, that's happened every, well, I guess the last two years, and it's the Global Windows Azure Bootcamp. And that's when around the world, a whole bunch of people get together on the same day, not at the same time, but at the same, on the same day. And they have just an intro to, to Azure. And each one of the locations is run by local volunteers. And they put together some content. It's almost always, here's an intro to Azure, but it might be intro to Azure from the standpoint of the IT pro or from uh, the developer who wants to learn about mobile services, et cetera. And on top of that, the Azure blog is somewhere I would definitely recommend that you go. Uh, the Azure team blog, more and more of the teams are being consolidated underneath that one Azure blog. So storage and mobile services and that, they're all kind of bubbling up underneath that one Azure blog. So that's definitely a place I would check out. And if you're working with Azure on one of the SDKs, they open source their, their SDK code, so, or for the majority of the SDK's codes. So there's a GitHub repo out there for that, and you can go out and check that out. And I use that actually quite a bit to figure out how they're 
how they're doing some of the calls to the REST service. Because uh, behind the scenes, all the services you use, whether it's the management service to create databases or create new VMs, or if it's actually to make a call to blob stores, those are all REST APIs. And uh, the SDKs for the various languages make it easy to you know, use those services from your language. But if you need to know what's actually going on under the hood or if you're getting errors, sometimes you have to dig into that SDK code and take a look. And it's also a great place. They don't really advertise this, but, <laughs> but because they're doing live development uh, in some cases against those branches, you can dig around in those branches and see what's coming. And then uh, last, you mentioned it in my, my bio, but uh, we just started a educational website called justazure.com. And the goal there is to just educate people about the various aspects of Azure coming not from the standpoint of Microsoft, but from the standpoint of folks that are using it in the, you know, out in the wild. Awesome. And I guess we should remind everyone, if you've got an MSDN subscription, you get Azure time. Mm -hmm. It's monthly. Yes. It's included. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but working with my customers, whether it's $10 or $10,000, if you have to ask the boss for money, that's a barrier, yeah. right? Like they just like, no, I'm not doing that. Does, and the amount doesn't seem to matter. It's the same amount of effort. Mm -hmm. So just reminding folks that, that if you have an MSDN subscription, you have Azure time you're probably not using. Even if it's Absolutely. to check out the next version of Visual Studio. Yeah, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you can go take Azure out for a spin without having to spend any money. Mike Wood, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a boy. Life is hard.